Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Nice to see you. You also looking good as usual. Yeah, you too. Spring is here. I don't know when people will listen to this as time goes on, but this is like the first day of relief from our blah weather or nothing mm-hmm. kind of a winter. Anyway, so today thinking about our topic, this is something that you and I have talked about, Julie, so many times and we've never taken a dive into it like this. And um, leading into the conversation, um, you know, we talk about, we have parents and different family members and friends approaching us all the time about the struggles with somebody in their family or their close life, uh, struggling with mental illness and how life changes as time goes on. When, when somebody is, you know, first diagnosed as a young adult or even a child. And then as they get older, all of these issues change. How do you look into the future of taking care of this person? I mean, we've both heard people in support groups over the many years. This is a hot topic of people that are saying, God, I've been dealing with this for years, but now what am I going to do about, you know, they can't take care of their money. They can hardly hold a job if they if even that, and um, just life in general and organization of life, and I won't be here forever, and so on and so on. So I'm so happy today that we can finally really dive in on this one. So the topic, the topic at hand is guardianship. And to join us, we are so fortunate to have attorney Joe Monahan, founder of Monahan Law Group in Chicago. He is one of the leading mental health law attorneys in Illinois and has tried countless guardianship, mental health, and child welfare cases over the past 38 years at every level of the court system, including the Illinois Supreme Court. Joe has been an engaging member of the legal community throughout his career and has played an essential role in developing important policies and legislation to assist individuals with disabilities as well as those involved in their care. And so often, Julie, you and I ask how our guests decided to specialize in their respective fields. Well, with Mr. Monahan, so unique to find that he is also a social worker, making him no doubt acutely aware of the legal issues that impact social service professionals and the people they serve. So looking forward to hearing his story and learning about guardianship and related issues today. Welcome, Joe Monahan. Welcome, Joe. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much, Nancy and Julie. It's great to be at. Um, I had an occasion to listen to your Behind Our Door podcast, and oh, good. the guests that you have are really practical and 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 can really add to the, all sorts of different kinds of conversations. Um, I will correct one thing that you said, and that Go is right ahead. Um, I need it, Joe. Whatever you can correct is a, <laughs> it, that's a good start. That's a good start. I'm trained as a social worker, but oh. I can't call myself a social worker, even though I have a master's degree in social work because I'm not licensed. Okay, I am okay. a licensed and practicing attorney, um, and but. Obviously, my training as a social worker and my work as a social worker before I was a lawyer really helps me in uh, in my professional career. So yeah, we wanted to talk about guardianship today. Is that right? That's uh, right. We need yeah. to we need to learn as much as we can about yeah. About. It's a it's a it's a really hot um, topic in our in in my support groups and you know how do you gain guardianship because mental health is different than someone the 
that's, let's say, um, I don't know what the word is now, who has lower IQ or someone who can't function without help. Right. So there, uh, what we'll talk about is adult guardianship. And so for most jurisdictions throughout the United States, adults are going to be considered 18 and above, uh, 18 years of age or older. And so um, what I want to talk about is in using Illinois as a model, I'll talk about what guardianship is and what it is right. not. I'll also talk about um, the fact of what are some alternatives to guardianship. So maybe those alternatives might work for some of your listeners. So what is guardianship? Well, the first thing that one has to know is it's a formal appointment by the court. Uh, in order to be appointed somebody's guardian, you have to file a petition. Usually that petition and a petition is simply a request to the court. I would like to become guardian or so-and-so needs a guardian appointed for them. And if you're appointed a guardian of the court, you actually become an officer of the court and you serve at the pleasure of the court and you have to report to the court on a periodic basis. Um, there's a couple of different types of guardianship generally. And in some jurisdictions, we call these conservatorships. Um, but in Illinois and in many other jurisdictions, we have two major uh, types of guardian, a guardian of the person and a guardian of the estate. And just like the title suggests, a guardian of the person makes personal decisions for somebody, where they live, who they live with, provides written and informed consent to medical procedures, um, they will have access to their files, their medical files and their medical records, and they really serve as a, an advocate or a voice for that person. Who can, I may... ask you, can I ask you a question just before? Yeah, so when yeah. somebody is appointed this, they can't, it's not, a, they're, they're very specified in the court system of what type they are, or, yes. or it's not a blanket statement, but that's what they're going to do. It's written yes. in verbiage of what type exactly. Yeah. Okay. And typically it's a guardian of the person or uh, a guardian of the estate. And many states call them conservators of the estate, which emotes this whole kind of protection mode for t protecting people's money. So as I said, a guardian of the person makes personal decisions, whereas a guardian of the estate will make money decisions, how they spend their money, making sure that they have enough money available, managing their money, investing their money, making sure their taxes are paid. And and for uh, all intents and purposes, they are their banker. They're, they They safeguard the money, they pay their bills, they make sure that the individual who needs a guardian is being protected from financial exploitation. One of the questions we get all the time is, hey, I'd like to be my sister's guardian or my son or daughter's guardian, but they don't have much money. Do mm -hmm. I become responsible, responsible yeah. for their bills after they run out of their money? And the clear answer to that is no, you do not. Um, uh, you just are responsible for managing and taking care of their money. And when their money is out, you're going to plan for that and you're going to help them 
you know, apply for public benefits or social security or social security disability or whatever they might be eligible for. In Illinois and in many jurisdictions, there's also a temporary guardian. And typically a temporary guardian can either be a guardian, temporary guardian of the person or a temporary guardian of the estate. And what's different than a full or plenary guardian, what we call, the temporary guardian is only good for a limited time. In Illinois, it's 60 days. And so what a temporary guardian is used for is to get immediate appointment for a person, and then um, within that 60-day period, go to a trial and make sure that they have a full or plenary guardian if that's what you're looking for. Is, so, is for that, example, excuse me, is ahead. that for somebody that is resistant to have a guardian at time? Is that like a stepping stone for if, someone who would say, I don't want a guardian? They'll say, well, temporarily, and then they'll work on it that way. Yes, that's one of the things. Or there's some urgent need. Um, we'll talk about the process in a second, but the um, typically it will take around anywhere from 25 to 35 days to get a full or plenary guardian appointed if you were just going into court to get a court date to you know present the papers and all of that so if you needed a temporary guardian to make decisions right away you can use a temporary guardian and we can get a temporary guardian appointed in a couple of days um the third type of guardianship in illinois is what we call a limited guardian and you again, you can have a limited guardian of the person and a limited guardian of the estate. And that, uh, Nancy and Julia, is, is a, a, a status that we use for some of those people who cognitively can make some, but not all of their decisions. So we try to limit the amount of uh, control that a guardian will have over them. So for many people with a diagnosis of mental health issues, we will say, well, they can decide where they want to live and who they want to live with, but they need some help with other uh, health care decisions. So we limit that guardianship to certain things, maybe just access to their records or maybe access to their treating uh, physicians and psychiatrists so that they can help participate in making a plan. Uh, the same thing with the limited guardian of the estate. They may be able to manage some, but not all of their money. And so we give them a limited authority to make sure that they pay their taxes, have a home to live in, or a place to live in, or something like that. Let's talk for a second about the practical. How much does it cost? I was just going to ask you that because cost is, you know, mental health is so expensive. You would yes. think only rich people would have it. Yeah, and, and when you're thinking about getting a guardian appointed, it is a court process. So you have, number one, you have a filing fee with court, and those filing fees can be anywhere from 200 to $400. You have to serve the person, so you have to pay either the sheriff or a special process server to, to go out and actually hand a summons to that person in in person and that can cost anywhere from 75 to 100 or 150 dollars 
a lot of times in jurisdictions, the court will appoint what we call a guardian at litem. And a guardian at litem is another lawyer or a, an official appointed by the court to go out and investigate the guardianship and to serve as the eyes and ears of the court. So if Julie says, I think Joe needs a guardian, she would have to file a petition. She would have to pay for a filing. She would have to pay to have me served. And a guardian at litem would actually go out and say, hey, Joe, guess what? Julia's filed a petition for guardian and wants Nancy to be appointed. Uh, and Julie, Julie, when she filed that, the guardian at litem would say, you have a right to object. You have a right to be present. You have a right to notice. You have a right to an independent exam. You have a right to, in, in Illinois, a right to have a jury hear this oh, wow. case. So it's a very important thing. And we'll talk about why all these rights for somebody who obviously needs help. The fourth cost is the cost for the lawyer that you hire. And then the fifth cost could be if I said, I don't need a guardian. I don't want a guardian. I don't have a disability. I can make my own decisions. I don't need this. Julie, you just go home because I don't want it. Um, mm -hmm. I have a right which to object. I, which I imagine happens often. Imagine, particularly with people with the diagnosis, because yeah. oftentimes people with the diagnosis say, I, I don't have a mental health exactly. issue. Exactly. It's all right. I don't need help. I don't need yeah. medication. Right. And so, um, so I have a right to be represented. So the fifth cost can be an attorney. So. How much does all this add up to be? Well, it's 300 for the filing. It's 100 for the service. The guardian at litem is going to cost anywhere from $500 to $1,500. Uh, there's attorney's fees for preparing wow. the petition and all of that. So all added up, it can cost anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000 to file a guardianship. And if it's contested, it can be a whole lot more. So you can go from three to five thousand to thirty thousand to forty thousand, depending oh, okay. on how rigorous it is. Now the good news about guardianship is it does offer protection for a person who needs a guardian. And in Illinois, what we call a person who needs a guardian is we actually refer to them, the law refers to them as a disabled person. And what happens when you file the petition is you're asking the court to declare this person. So Julie would be saying to the judge, declare Joe to be a disabled person, meaning he needs a guardian. And then she could protect me. She could make sure that my I didn't misspend money or I wasn't financially ex exploited. She could have access to my records. She could work with my doctors and and come up with the treatment plan she could help me find a place to live pick my roommates etc cetera, etc cetera. and julie would have to be accountable to the court the bad news about guardianship in illinois and in many other jurisdictions is even if julie were my full or plenary guardian she would have four areas where she could not control me the first one is she could not admit me to a psychiatric hospital against my will. 
The second Hmm. is she couldn't force me to take psychotropic medication against my will. The third area is she couldn't force me to take electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy against my will. And the fourth one is she couldn't force me to go into a residential treatment for psychiatric care against my will. Now, she could do all of those things by filing a separate proceeding under the mental health code. But just by virtue of being my guardian, she would not have the authority to do that. So for a lot of people, they say, hmm, why would I want to be his guardian if I couldn't put him in the hospital, if I couldn't give him medication, if I couldn't get him the treatment that he needs against his will? Why would I want to be his guardian? Well, the reason is all of the things that I said earlier about the good news. You would still be able to protect me to the limited extent that you couldn't force me into the hospital, force me to take medication and things like that. You would still be able to talk to my doctors. You would still be able to work with them to come up with appropriate treatment plans and things like that. So that's a lot of information about guardianship in a very few short minutes. But the bad news is that it can cost a lot of money if there's an objection. The bad Mm -hmm. news is the limitations that there are for a person with a diagnosed mental health issue. The good news is it does offer some protection. And the form, the it, it's a formal process by which you go to court and get appointed as an officer of the court and you have to be accountable to the court. When, when, when you I, said, yeah. I'm sorry, when you said before accountability to the court and that this person who's appointed gar- guardian of, of whomever has to appear in court, how often is that, that they would have to report to the court? And what do they have to report? What's going they, on? Or- so, so the guardian of the person is required to report to the court once a year oh. to say how they're doing and what they're doing and how I'm doing um, and where I'm living. Am I, are there any unusual incidents that happen during the year? Is my housing stable? Just to check in to make sure that Julie is doing a good job and I'm okay. You know, there's some very widely uh, publicized cases of conservatorship and guardianship, Britney Spears being one of them. Right. Right. so So popular. Yeah, so a lot of questions about her father being the conservator. And, you know, here was a young woman who was a, you know, a world-known rock star and had a mental health issue and needed to be Mm -hmm. hospitalized. And without making any judgments about whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, but when you think about the power that that guardianship that they had over Britney Spears, they were saying they they had cameras in her bedroom, allegedly. They were talking about what kind of birth control that she was having so that she wouldn't be able to have uh, any more children. They were spending and investing her money. Now, the other side of the story was that they were protecting her. They were making sure that she wasn't, you know, getting access to all sorts of people who are going to take advantage of her. And um, they, and so there's both sides to that story. 
you know, on one hand, they they can look at um, those t- types of things, and there might be alternatives in a in a in a famous rock star case to formal guardianship. What are some of those alternatives? One would be a power of attorney for health care. I was wondering so, that. Yeah. So anybody over the age of 18 can create what we call an agency agreement and appoint somebody that they trust. So I, Joe, could appoint Nancy to be my agent under a healthcare power of attorney. And in the event that I needed help, should I or should I not get surgery? Should I or should I not do X, Y, or Z? I could turn to my agent and ask Nancy to help me. What about and, what about when you said the things that weren't covered under the conservatorship of having somebody admitted involuntarily to a psychiatric hospital and and uh, of that kind, all those issues, oh, taking yeah, medication? Yeah. Does the power of attorney cover that if somebody yeah. is signed on as an agent? Can they? Yes. If I appoint you my agent. Uh, Nancy, to make all healthcare decisions for me, I can put some checks in there. Number one, I can put a trigger in there that says when it comes to effect. I can say, I want Nancy to be my agent today and for all time. And you could start making healthcare decisions for me today. Come on, Joe, we need to go to the mental hospital. And you would have the authority to do that. Come on, Joe, you need to take your Haldol or you need to take this medication that's been prescribed to you. You could provide written and informed consent. It's a You could make end-of-life decisions for me, whether to so-called pull the plug on me or not. You would have complete and utter control unless I decided I didn't want to give you certain control. Now, the bad news about powers of attorney is today, I think Nancy is the greatest person in the world. And tomorrow, I think she's part of the conspiracy. And so I can fire her at any time. So powers of attorney are great for people who are in agreement. But if I'm all of a sudden have delusions, or I have hallucinations, or I have I become paranoid and I no longer think Nancy is the kind, wonderful, spirited person that I want her to be. I can terminate that agreement at any time. Wow. And so wow. Let, let me interject for a second. Speaking of that, because obviously the questions we get, I think Nancy, Nancy can vouch for this, is that a lot of families um, are dealing with treatment resistant people. And therefore, it becomes a struggle. You want to put all these protections in place because you want to take care of your loved one. But yet, I mean, how do you do that if they are fighting you? Do they have to then put it in writing that they're declining you being a guardian? Yeah, excellent question. So in contrast to a guardianship, which is a formal court appointment, the power of attorney is a piece of paper, literally, okay. you know, three or five or seven pages mm-hmm. where I, Joe, appoint Nancy to be my agent. It's no court. It's no filing fees. It's no nothing. But I, Joe, 
have to voluntarily agree to have Nancy serve as my agent. Now, for a lot of people with diagnosed mental health issues, particularly when they're off their medicine, they're not going to voluntarily right. That's agree. what we run into a lot. Right. Yeah. And so that uh, powers of attorney are not going to be good options for them. But I always tell parents and loved ones of somebody with a diagnosis, understand what a power of attorney for health care is and aspire to do to get that in place. So when I'm stable when I'm on my medication and I know that Nancy is a kind and loving and wonderful person, then I want her to be my agent. That's when you want to get me, uh, encourage me to sign that agreement. Now, the people who have loved ones who have chronic mental health issues were so frustrated by powers of attorney for healthcare. As they said, wait a minute, you promised us that this would be better than guardianship, easier. I didn't have to go through all the expense of going to court. And then just when I want to use it, the person terminates me. And it was very frustrating. So does, does that happen often? It does happen often. And, and you know, people learn that they can terminate their agency agreement easily. And again, contrasting what we talked about guardianship, you can't just, if Julie's my guardian, I can't just say, Julie, you're fired. No siree. Yeah, I have to go back to tie. court and say, right. I have to get a court order to terminate that guardianship. But with a power of attorney, it can be just a revocation. I can tear it up. I can tell somebody I no longer want Nancy to be my agent. And uh, so people from the NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental right. Illness, said this is not very good. Guardianship costs money. It's got limitations on authority. Uh, powers of attorney are very simple and easy to put together, but they're revocable. So we need something else. So actually, about 23 states now have a thing uh, uh, called a mental health treatment declaration. Mm -hmm. Now, the right. mental health treatment declaration is a very powerful alternative to guardianship, and it includes three things. Number one, if instead of being my agent, Nancy was my attorney in fact, under a mental health treatment declaration, she could admit me to the hospital, even against my will, to the psychiatric hospital against my will, for up to 17 days. She could provide written and informed consent for the use of psychotropic medication, and she could provide written and informed consent for the use of ECT, even if I was objecting. So it's a very very, very powerful thing for someone with a chronic mental health diagnosis. So it, it would allow Nancy to admit me to the hospital. It would allow her to provide written and informed consent for medication and allow her to provide written and informed consent for the use of electric convulsive therapy. The limits on it are it's only good for three years. Right. But so, the person but the person um, at hand cannot just cancel it out like a power of attorney. It's a solid three years, irrevocable, can't do anything until 
That's up. Right. Okay. So that's up. And so that's a very, very, very powerful, uh, you know. But does it work across all? I'm sorry to interrupt. Does it work across all 50 states? Because I had one in place for my own son, who is uh-huh. now 30. It was many years ago. But he was in Florida at the time where he was in a psychotic, very unstable place, and they would not uphold it. Yeah, the, Julie, it it's going to be state dependent on okay. whether or not they're going to, unlike the powers of attorney, which Congress, our United States Congress in 1990, passed the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990. They said, effective January 1st, 1991, every state in the union was going to have and recognize powers of attorney for health care. And they tied it to highway funding. So, of course, all the states tied into it. They did not do the same thing with the mental health uh, treatment declaration. Now, there's another thing that we're seeing. Um, uh, uh, maybe I should stop before I move on um, to make sure that there's no other questions. Well, about- you were saying you were saying with that that there it's that mental health declaration is currently in 23 states. That's right. And so somebody could go on a website and see if that was their particular state, because yeah. that's something that I, you know, a lot of this year, which is, you know, this is just fascinating and beyond, you know, wealth of information, but it's it tied to Illinois and now these 23 states for somebody as this is a national podcast, somebody can log on. What would they look up in their state to see? Would this apply to me or how can I find out if this is my state? Yeah, I I think if you typed in the words mental health treatment declaration, that's what a lot of states will call it. Okay. And then you can see whether your state would do that. All states are going to include powers of attorney for health care, as we talked about. And because powers of attorney are based on agency law, Agency law requires it to be voluntary, and by being voluntary, that means it can be terminated. Now, right. um, I not to confuse everybody, but just like we have guardian of the person and guardian of the estate, we also have a power of attorney for health care and a power of attorney for property. And guess what? Uh, powers of attorney for property are not as easily terminated as powers of attorney for health care. What does that mean, power of attorney for property? Powers of attorney for property. A lot of people are familiar with it. When you go to a real estate closing, you appoint an agent to sign the papers for you. Oh, 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 yeah, Um, right. uh, You may give uh, somebody power to uh, watch over your your, property. some of your finances or something mm-hmm. like that. It's you as the principal are appointing an agent to help. Yeah. Or you when you're not there, it. you know, when you can't physically be there, there far away. Okay. okay. I appoint right. my, my right. next door neighbor to make right. sure that the landscaper is right. paid or, or right. something like that. So I don't want to get too far off because yeah, we're right. talking about those, but it is a little different. So just summing up where we are, we have guardianship. It's a formal process. It requires a court appointment. It, it the alternatives typically that we have are guardian are of to guardianship, our powers of attorney for healthcare. That's a voluntary. It's a form. 
go on the internet and you can go to your state and get a power of attorney for healthcare. Um, and it, they're very easy, simple to, to fill out. The more mental health oriented one would be a mental health treatment declaration. Now, the next alternative to guardianship is a relatively new phenomena called supportive decision-making. So oh. here um, we have states like California and Texas. Um, Texas was actually the first uh, to pass a law. And now, again, we have like 15 other states who uh, have signed on. And I'll just read them quickly. California, Texas, Massachusetts, Oregon, New Mexico, North Dakota, West Virginia, Alaska, Colorado, Delaware, Indiana, Louisiana, Washington, and Wisconsin. So all of those states have passed some kind of statute uh, which we call supportive decision-making. The, the concept is that people um, can make their own decisions if they have some support. So um, what I would uh, uh, often do with my clients, say, who are intellectually disabled is the term that we use now. We don't use developmentally disabled. We don't use mentally right. retarded. Uh, we right. intellectually disabled to cover a whole range of things. And, and particularly, I had a lot of clients who may have had um, a diagnosis of like Down syndrome. They went through special ed. They were, you know, went through all sorts of problems. Some, a lot of my clients with Downs um, are working they may be uh, working at grocery stores or parking garages, all sorts of different things, nurses' aides doing all sorts of things. But when they need help, where do they go? They go to their mom or dad or uh, a brother or sister. And so a lot of times, um, well-meaning social workers would say, oh, mom and dad, you got to go get guardianship. And I would dissuade well-meaning people to go get guardianship for those types of people who may have an intellectual disability, but their parents have worked their entire life trying to make them independent. And the consequence, which we didn't talk about, but we'll talk about now, the consequence of having a guardian or a conservator appointed for somebody is it makes them, in most states, adjudicated, they're a judge to be incompetent. So for people like in Illinois, that means they can't drive a car because oh. in Illinois, you have to have insurance and insurance is a contract. You can't have a contract. You can't sign a lease. You can't sign a check. You can't have a credit card. All of those things are designed to protect you if you're unable to make and communicate responsible decisions and you need a guardian and you're judged to be incompetent, you cannot execute. It's like you're being a minor again. So for a lot of people, 
they can handle some money. So we would use a limited guardianship, or we would use a power of attorney, or if they have a lot of money um, and they're a beneficiary of a trust, we would set up special needs trusts for them. There are other legal mechanisms rather than just making sure that they're adjudicated and they can't make their own decisions. So that's why we have all of these built-in protections for guardianship so that people just don't say, I'm your guardian, and they have all this authority over you. That's why they have a right to an attorney. That's why they have a right to notice. That's why they have a right to respond. And that's why the guardians have to report annually. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Very interesting. Oh, yeah. But, but it's but it's also a double-edged sword because, you know, if you're taking guardianship, you take away a lot of their rights. You know, in, in my situation, um, I was more concerned about my son's medical care moving forward with medicines. You know, he wasn't having a continuous um, psychotic episodes. They, they were very intermittent. And so for the most part, he was stable for, for many, many years. Um, but yet, I wanted him to be able to drive. I didn't want to take that away from him, especially if you live in a rural, rural area. Um, and on the other hand, having power of attorney, um, like I said, you know, he was in a completely psychotic state in a hospital and then revoked my power over him, which is, I, I just didn't understand that and, and how they could allow that to happen. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of other family members and caregivers in the same situations that I've been in. I think you're exactly right. And with, when you're dealing with a person with a chronic mental health issue and you have a person, oftentimes when they take medication, they're fine. When they get off medication, then things start to go downhill. And so having an agency agreement, a power of attorney to, to allow you to intervene right away is very helpful. Um, and, you know, what I what I say to parents and to people who have loved ones who have a chronic uh, condition, uh, a diagnosis, that you try to put in place a power of attorney and in a, a uh, mental health treatment declaration while they're in a good spot. Yeah, so that right. when and if a crisis becomes that they become psychotic, that you'll be able to act. So, um, so be pro you're saying be proactive about it. Think ahead. Yes. Hatch it while yeah, other, Otherwise, you're going to have to go in Florida under the Baker Act or in in, right. in, in California, 5150, I think they call it in Illinois. It's a commitment in all the states. New York has a different standard of commitment. And and it's it's a cumbersome process to go into court to get court orders to commit people and to get them medicated against their will. And it's a cumbersome process because we value as a society our our person's ability to make decisions. But Julie, you hit it right on the head. If your if your loved one is psychotic and you have this power of attorney in place and you're the person who's there to help him or her, and they say, well, I revoke it, that's very frustrating. Right. And that's why NAMI, uh, in particular, 
really work towards getting the mental health treatment declaration so that it wasn't revocable um, for that three-year period. It makes so much sense. Yeah, right. it's good. So back to our supportive decision-making, which, um, as I said, in 2015, that's eight years ago, Texas was the first one. Um, the uh, it, it allows people to enter into an agreement to be their supporter. So um, I can identify somebody today that I know that maybe I have an intellectual disability or maybe I have a, a cyclable type of mental health issue, manic depressive illness, where sometimes I will cycle in to a mania or depression. And I know that I need some help in those times because I make terrible decisions at that point. And so I can appoint somebody very similar to a power of attorney, um, and I can appoint my helper or supporter to help me make decisions. Um, and it, it's a simple form, again, in the statute. Um, and uh, it, it allows me to say, here's my supporter, and here's the types of help that I might need getting food, getting shelter, help me make decisions with uh, physical or emotional health things. Um, and it's safeguarded. It's it's sort of um, uh, power of attorney-like because, mm -hmm. again, I can't make decisions. My supporter cannot make decisions against my will, and they need my agreement to create this thing. But it, it what it is... It's a recognition that people with, even with a disability, can make supportive decisions. And so it's it's another kind of range in the possibilities from guardianship to powers of attorney to mental health treatment declaration. And now we have a formal supportive decision making in, as I say, about 15 states when I looked last looked at it. Um, but is that only upheld within the 15 states or is yes. that okay yes. is it yes. growing do you see that more states are becoming interested in getting on board with this yeah i think it's really it, it, it in looking at the origin of this it's really uh been born of the united nations uh in 2006 had a convention on the rights of persons with disabilities and Congress back that, you know, their Senate set up a special committee on aging to look for, you know, trying to look for alternatives to guardianship because of the the difficulties that, that people saw with it. And it really is a recognition that we should look at people um, with, you know, who have some type of identified disability, not as totally disabled, but they can be participants in in their decision making. So that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Instead of having people dictate to them, right? You know about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it's it. It's got a different tone. Yes, right. An entirely and it, and, different tone, and it fits. You know, you look at all different, all of these individuals people coming at this from different perspectives. And it's just really encouraging to know they're making more custom-made support uh, plans, uh, you know, available throughout the states. It's, uh, yeah, I think, it's I a think positive. So. 
And, you know, I think people really, you know, guardianship is not supposed to be used except to the extent that it's necessary. Um, you know, courts throughout the nation are, have looked at um, the the difference between what we call a substituted judgment standard and a best interest standard. And that might be good for a minute to talk about the difference. So let's suppose we have somebody who is in a horrible car accident and they're rushed to the hospital and um, they uh, need surgery. And um, as the uh, they're wheeling the person into surgery, the person looks up and says, my religion says I don't use blood. So I don't want any kind of blood or blood products. I would rather die. So that's their substituted judgment. That's what makes them. They have a First Amendment right to practice their religion. They have a First Amendment right to freedom of speech. That's that's their substituted judgment. But some third party may look at that and say, well, it's in your best interest to get the blood, because if you get the blood, you live. If you don't get the blood, you die. So courts have been struggling with this whole issue of what is the standard that we use when we are what all of what we're talking about is substitute decision making, right? A guardian substitutes their decision for their ward. An agent substitutes their decision for the principal. An attorney, in fact, substitute their decision. We look to somebody other than the patient to make that decision. And the person who's making the decision has to say, how do you make this decision? Do you make it in a substituted judgment manner or do you make it in the best interest? And that contrast about getting the blood they live, not getting the blood they die, or somebody who says, I don't believe in heart surgery. I work for the Heart Association and I just, I, I don't believe in heart surgery. But today, heart surgery is done on an outpatient basis in some kinds. You know, they're right. putting stints in, they're replacing hearts, they're doing, it's not that big a deal as it was some time ago. And so the decision maker has to say, okay, what am I going to do? You know, it's that empathetic step in the person's moccasins and walk the walk with them. And that's what really a substituted decision maker. And we're seeing courts throughout the land taking on a substituted decision making that that substitute decision makers are going to use what that person would want, even if, if it means that they don't get the heart surgery or, or they don't get the blood or some other dramatic kind of thing where they have firmly held beliefs that some people just don't like medicine, right? Or yes. some people don't, you know. So I, I think for you who are going to serve as a substitute decision maker, you have to really think about how you are going to make decisions um, when you're placed in that position to, are you going to end life? Are you going to pull the plug? Are you going to watch your loved one 
who's asked you to stand in their shoes, watch them suffer? Are you going to hook them up to machines? Are you going to do whatever is reasonably possible? And so if you're going to serve in, as a substitute decision maker, as a guardian, as an agent, I would have that conversation with the person now yeah, while you can. That, that's, I mean, that's such a good point that I was going to say, what's, you know, what's the advice for those that are thinking this could be us, our family, uh, you know, and where to begin? And you're, you know, you're giving such great information about the exact what they can do. But I also think that your whole point about, um, you know, the decision making, let's say, you know, it's not mental health when you're talking about the heart or the person that doesn't believe in medication and so on and so forth. Back to the into the mental health side of it, the person that you're appointing to be possibly to be the guardian or whatever kind of support that we're talking about, the alternatives or what have you, they really have to know or they should really know the person who's struggling. They should know the core of that person. It shouldn't just be the most uh the most, the, the best educated in the family or the best, you know, somebody who knows finances or somebody who just knows this or that, they really should know the person because when they are psychotic and then they're not psychotic, you know, just to know that core of what they would want, you're representing them. And yeah. I just feel as though your point when you're talking about these outside issues, like with the heart and medication, it really drives it home of, boy, you know, really know the person that you're representing. The family should choose somebody that really is the best to represent, you know, with values and, you know, the most unbiased. important issues, right, unbiased to that person. Yeah, so right. I just feel as though that's an important thought, at least from all of this conversation. I agree with you, Nancy, to really understand what makes that person, that particular that, person, yeah, that particular person, their thoughts, their beliefs, their, right. you know, right. um, and so that's really important. And, you know, I think that the law has done is try to guide people to those decision making points, you know, and some of the forms for powers of attorney, they say, what would you like? Would you do you want us to do A, B or C? Um, the five wishes document is a very uh, popular document that you can find on the internet where people are asked to speak in advance of what you want. And, and all of this is not only for people with diagnosed mental health issues. This is for all of us. Everyone should have a power of attorney. Uh, everyone should have a power of attorney because we never know when either by stroke or by getting hit by a bus or by getting hit by a foul ball or by, you know, getting hit by a car, whatever. In an instant, we can be in a position where we're not able to make decisions. So part of every estate plan should be a power of attorney for health care and a power of attorney for property. Maybe we could have you back on to go over more of that and how to get them and, um, you know, trusts and wills, if you would like to join us again. Yeah. But I think that's that's crucial information, too, that a lot of families struggle with. Especially, especially again, as their loved one is getting older and they are getting older and they're realizing yeah. we better start thinking about the future, uh, like when we're not here or yeah. even if we are here, this person is 
all of a sudden going to be in charge of a certain amount of finances and could just blow the whole thing and you know really yeah. all of the yeah. uh, all of the above so that's, um that's such a great point nancy that there are strategies that we as as uh, as state planners will use um to try to address you know to preserve all of the things that you put in place you know to get somebody qualified for medicaid or medicare or disability and then know that um just because they got an inheritance that they lost it on, you know, uh, any public benefits, any means tested public benefits. So those are important things to to plan for, I think. And just to keep the crisis down. I mean, people that are, you know, dealing with family members that are struggling with mental illness uh, can live in crisis and wait for the next, the next chaotic moment that, it really, the more you can plan ahead and be proactive, as you're saying, with any with all, any of these mm-hmm. issues, boy, it sure can't hurt. So hopefully yeah. those listening are really taking into account you're giving such great advice and thorough information on this that, um, you know, listening to this, I, I, I'll re-listen with a pad of paper, pencil and paper. <laughs> Me I mean, too. I'm, I'm busy Me listening, too. listening, but wow. Very. I, we can't thank you enough. This has really been uh, terrific. It's well, what, we, couple, what we hope for and more. Uh, a yeah. couple of things that I would just add, you know, with the focus today and all the tragedies that we have been witnessing, uh, particularly with, uh, you know, the gun violence and, mm-hmm. and many, many people are taking away um, uh, the wrong message uh, you know, and oftentimes these horrible tragedies that we've experienced as a society all over the country, you know, oftentimes it's identified that the person is a is a person who has a diagnosed mental illness or a mental health issue. And um, the the couple of things I would say about that: number one is you're more likely to be a victim of a crime. Yes. as the person with a diagnosed mental illness. Uh, number two, um, you know, there, there are different strategies that we use and different laws are being passed throughout the nation about, um, you know, how to get help for people who might be in crisis. And if you see something, do something, right? And particularly those. So I, I just, whenever I speak about this topic, I, I want to make sure that, People are open to a, a notion, and and now I think one of the things that's happening we have a big focus on prevention, on getting treatment for people, getting access, and that is so very very important. And Absolutely, getting rid of the yeah. stigma that's associated with getting treatment. Is Absolutely. So Thank you. Thank you for saying that again, because uh, we talk about that all the time on the podcast. Like if you see something, say something, because it only can save other people. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, Joe. This has just okay. been thank you, Joe. terrific. We this we can't wait to have you back. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you well, for thank volu- you, and Thank you th- for all your work on this. It's great. Oh, thanks, Joe. Oh, thank you. Okay. See, we'll see you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at 
behindourdooratmail.com. That's behindourdooratmail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.